Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S. Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Politicus. My name is Angela Samos, and I am here with my esteemed co-host, the illustrious Denise Borges. How are you, Senor Denise? I am not as illustrious as the almighty <laughs> chairperson, but, you know, I'm a poor invitation, but that's okay. <laughs> right. So we, I think this is our first representative from the state of Hawaii. No, no, no. I take that back. We did Tyler Dos Santos. Right, but 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 but, 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 um, but as honorary consul, not as a representative. So as a representative, yeah. This so is our, this is our first elected representative from Hawaii. Yes, indeed. So we're very excited to have Representative Patrick Bronco with us today. Welcome, Representative Bronco. Aloha, everyone. Mahalo for having me. So we're very excited to hear your story, and uh, I was reading a little bit about your bio that you've done. You know, either U.S. Foreign Service, and so. That's always sounds, uh, it might sound more romantic or, you know, adventurous <laughs> than it actually is, but please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in, in politics and, you know, a little bit about uh, where you grew up. Yeah. So I'm born and raised uh, fourth generation from a small town called Kailua on the island of Oahu. And so my family moved there in 1953. And so I'm very lucky to be the representative of this town. I always say it's one of the most unique districts in Hawaii because we are very fortunate to have the largest wetlands in Hawaii that borders one side. And we also have America's number one beach on the other side. And on the other side, we have this beautiful bay that is one of like, basically it's like a great barrier reef in Hawaii. So it's a very unique district that we have white sand beaches, huge wetlands, as well as like this coral reserve as well. Wow. So I'm very fortunate to represent this district, but um, a little bit about me and my family. Um, I am, my father is Portuguese Puerto Rican. Um, my mother is Chinese Hawaiian. And so I am a, a melting pot, but that's, that's Hawaii, right? If mm -hmm. you're not familiar, Hawaii had this plantation culture that, that came through and many ethnic groups came from different places in the world. And so all these different races met on the plantation and started uh, creating us beautiful mixed breed babies that came out <laughs> from that. And so that's kind of my, my family's history uh, here in Kailua. And uh, what pathway took you to, to being a representative, to being in, pub, in public office? What, what led you to that? Is that something that began when you were younger? You're still very young, but when you, were, when you were basically in grade school, or how did that come about? Yeah, so actually in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher was cousins with the current governor at the time, Governor Waihe'e. And she took us there for Christmas to the governor's mansion. Oh, and wow. I, that's special. Yeah, very special. And I walked in and I'm like, what is this? I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want it. And so <laughs> when I figured out uh, what was going on, I my grandmother had uh, accompanied me on the field trip and I had told her that I'm going to be the governor one day. And I always knew since then that I wanted to be 
a lawmaker. And so this is, when were you first elected? And uh, tell us a little bit about the process of that. Uh, primaries, uh, were that involved and everything else? Yeah, so I was prior, as you mentioned prior, I was in the Foreign Service. So um, I was very fortunate that after I graduated from undergrad, this is going to be a lengthy story, but I'm going to set it all up. It's going Please to make do. sense. And so during my undergrad, I received a scholarship from the Department of State to study Korean language. And so when I went to Seoul during the orientation, they said that if you like studying languages, you should consider being a U.S. diplomat. And so I graduated from university in 2009, and that was the height of the financial crisis. So there was no jobs. So, of course, during any crisis, there are no jobs, but there's always one entity that's always hiring, and it's the federal government. government. Right. (laughs) And so I remember this. So I applied for this scholarship program, fellowship program called the Charles B. Rangel International Affairs Fellowship. And basically, it's a program that pipelines um, young minorities from across the country into the State Department to become foreign service officers or U.S. diplomats. And so let me tell you a little bit about this program. So Congressman Rangel was a Puerto Rican, African-American congressman from New York traveled all around the world. Everybody knows Charlie Rangel. I mean, my my generation, Angela's probably doesn't, but my generation knows Charlie Rangel really well. Exactly. (laughs) Like, you can't miss him. He is the flyish dresser. Anytime he enters the room, (laughs) he he is decked out, French cuffs, cufflings. But he is is an amazing, amazing politician. And so he would travel all around the world, and they always thought he was the driver. And so what Uh he was the State Department was not as diverse as the diversity of America. So he created this program that would diversify the State Department. His joke was that State Department was pale, male, stale, and Yale. And so (laughs) he, he created this program that recruited 20 from across the country. They paid for our master's program at the top universities in in business, international diplomacy, economics. And then it set up all of our internships. So my first internship was on the Hill under Congressman Faleo Mavaenga from American Samoa. And then my second internship was in Embassy Seoul where I finished that. And then after that, when I graduated, I studied at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in International Economics and Korea Studies. And once I graduated, I entered the Foreign Service. And that's what kind of started me there. And so, but always in the back of my mind was, I'm from Hawaii, I need to serve, I'm gaining experience. And eventually I would return back to Hawaii to run for office. It's it's great that, you know, whether it was your professor or, you know, part of the program you were in that they recommended the Foreign Service, you know, if you like languages. Because, I mean, looking back, had you, uh, had they not mentioned that, do you think you would have thought of that on your own? I mean, I have to say going into the U S foreign service, isn't something I feel like people talk about really, or recommend, you know, and, and it's a shame. That's probably, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. It's, it's not, I didn't even know what the foreign service was until probably my junior sophomore year in college. It's just a, it's a fabulous career that, like you said, no one talks about. And so that was, as soon as I found out about it, I was like, okay, because for me wanting to be a elected official, 
my thought process was, okay, I'll go to law school, you know, I'll practice law for a little bit, and then I'll just make my way into the state legislature. But, you know, when I found about the Foreign Service, I just, I was taken aback. And so it was, it was great to, to be in there. And I can just kind of share my first tour, right? So I'm, I'm from Hawaii. My experience is in Korea, Japan, those type of geopolitics. And I enter the Foreign Service and with, you know, I come in speaking decent Korean. And my first tour is in Bogota, Colombia. And <laughs> it totally throws you off. Couldn't use the language skills that much, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And... It was, it was an amazing experience for me. It was my first time living in South America, but also it was a very unique experience for me because, um, you know, I am part Latino, right? And I, I pull more on the Latin side. My look is more Latin. And so I, when I ended up in South America, I, I blended in more. I kind of felt at home. Everyone kind of had dark, you know, light skin and dark features like me, right? And so it was a very interesting experience for me to, you know, I, ra- I was raised in a very native Hawaiian household. And then now to then experience my Latin culture as well was very, was very mm-hmm. interesting. So from the foreign uh, services, is, is that when you tr- came back to Hawaii to, do, to, to run directly or did? Yeah. So I was in, so um, it kind of started thanks to uh, the dictator Maduro, actually. So I was stationed in Venezuela and uh Maduro kicked out all U.S. diplomats in, I think, January 2019. And so I had 24 hours to leave. I got kicked out. I got um, PNG'd or persona non grata, as they say. And I then needed to find a place. And so I got picked up. We opened a Venezuelan affairs unit at Embassy Bogota. So I got asked to go there temporarily for a year. And so after that year, I didn't have a tour. So I was going through the bidding process. But at that same time, someone posted an article on my Facebook saying long-term representative Cynthia Thielen, who held the seat for 30 years, is retiring and said, Pat, this may be your time. And people just started commenting on this article and this post saying, if you run, I will support you. If you run, I will write your first check. And (laughs) it's hard to pass up. (laughs) I got some, I made some phone calls back home and Within two weeks, I resigned from the State Department, living in Bogota, Colombia, and I moved back home, and I launched my campaign a month later. And uh, was it a hard-fought campaign, or was it an easy shoe-in? It wasn't. I wouldn't say I was a shoe-in, but I do think that my prior experience helped me be prepared to run for office. So there was, I did have another Democratic opponent, and then in the general election, I had a Republican opponent. And so, you know, we got out there. Um, The thing about running for office is you have to knock on doors, right? You have to get out there. So as soon as I got home, I started knocking on doors. I I knocked almost 4,000 doors before the pandemic. Wow. And so I was very lucky that I had that head start because my Democratic opponent had already won and won the Democratic nomination last time. And so this was my thought was if I'm out there knocking, that's the way I can beat him. And so how, you know, you have to build a whole team, right, for your campaign. So how did you go about doing that? Uh, You know, how do you find a campaign manager? How do you find 
people that are you know willing to stuff envelopes and make phone calls so people can get lawn signs and donations and like how do you build that and the reason i'm asking is because you know part of our mission here is to encourage more portuguese americans to run for office and i think sometimes when you think about having to run a campaign and do all that work it's, it feels very overwhelming and people don't even know where to start so if if you could just kind of talk about your experience that way i think that'd be really interesting yeah absolutely which was my my uh when you're when you're a US diplomat you're dropped into a country and then your job is to make connections as soon as possible and so i took that same strategy right dropped it back into hawaii and i just started making phone calls anyone that i knew that was kind of politically affiliated or kind of had some general interest i just started getting getting on there and just kind of doing my telephone diplomacy and just saying you want to get a coffee and what not and eventually i ended up meeting a gentleman who was also just starting up didn't want to run for office but was interested in learning how to run campaigns and we also happened to go to the same high school so we connected over that and then that's what kind of started the whole apparatus and from there we just kind of picked up volunteers and our whole strategy when it came to building a team was it wasn't about getting me elected of course like that was the goal right to get me elected but it was also how can the campaign benefit you in your professional career like our campaign manager wanted to learn how to run campaigns because he was interested mm. in career another person that was a volunteer wanted to learn how to write speeches right because he wanted to be a mm. speechwriter for someone in the administration started writing me speeches and so that was really the take we took on our campaign was to find people interested in helping me but also help them build their professional portfolio as well. That's great. And so talk a little bit about just switching gears now to the Portuguese community in Hawaii. You know, it's it's a community that's been around for a very long time and has, you know, done a great job of maintaining its cultural identity. You know, you still have festivals there, there's some clubs, but they're, you know, I, I kind of liken it to um other states, even maybe California, in that they're run, they're not uh, concentrated like Massachusetts or Rhode Island. You know, a bit spread out. But can you talk a little bit about the the Portuguese community there and and you know your involvement there? And and you know we've actually discovered that there are quite a few elected officials in Hawaii that have uh, Portuguese heritage, which is wonderful. I don't know if there's if there's if that's just a coincidence or if there's something to be attributed to that. Um, but we'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective on that. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of prominent leaders who have Portuguese descent here in Hawaii and I I appreciate that they have the, their connections and we're you know we're really good about keeping up our culture and our connections. I think I try I'm trying to like how to how to probably say this but it always goes back to whenever people ask me they're like, "Oh, Bronco, right? Oh, you must be Portuguese." And then they ask me, what camp was your grandfather from, right? And then I tell them, oh, it was at a Hilo. And they're like, oh, I know someone from that camp. And that's how it all goes <laughs> back to the plantation days, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how you make the the connection to figure out where your family came from. And it, it's still, even though that, you know, my family came over 100 years ago, right? We still know where they came from. There's that history. There's that culture. And also Portuguese cuisine is just part of our everyday mm -hmm. life here in Hawaii, right? And uh, most people you'll find on the street are, if they're from an old family in Hawaii, they're probably Portuguese or they're probably related to some Portuguese people. Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of shows the, the connection and still goes on. 
And so you said Portuguese and Puerto Rican, uh, uh, both. And so did did your family transition through Puerto Rico first, or or, or what what do you know about their transition? I mean, it's interesting, as you said, um, we've done some. Uh, uh, I've, I've personally I've done some work with uh, with um, uh, Michael Dematuj, which is a um, works at the University of Hawaii, and it's it's interesting how some of them did transition through other parts of the world. Uh, some 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 came directly from the Azores, Madeira, or very few from mainland Portugal, mostly from Madeira and the Azores. Uh, but some of them went to Venezuela first, or some of them went to other parts of the world first. Uh, do you have that recollection, or do you know anything about that as well? Yeah. So what was shared with me was my family came from the Azores directly to Hawaii, as well as from Puerto Rico, they directly came from Hawaii as well. And they both came to, to work on the plantations. Mm-hmm. And my two, I guess, sides, how they met was they were at adjacent camps, right? In the plantation era, um, it was basically all the Portuguese lived together, all the Japanese lived together, all the Chinese get together. And from my understanding, there was these dances, right? Or what they would call like kachi kachi music would go and they would go <laughs> dancing. And then that's where it kind of all mixed. And so my, from my understanding, my grandmother was from the Puerto Rican camp, which was adjacent to the Portuguese camp. And there's lots of similarities between both of them. Both of them, of course, have uh, Latin-based, uh, you know, uh, roots. Uh, Puerto Rico, Spanish, and, and uh, the Azores, yeah. Portuguese, and and so there's lots of uh, lots of similarities there as well. Obviously, the continuation of the uh, of the Portuguese presence in Hawaii. Do you see the younger generations, even younger than yourself, with the same? Uh, enthusiasm about knowing a little bit or a little bit more uh, as years go by about their heritage as you see with the older generation because uh, my contact with the older generation in Hawaii is that they're very very interested and so and I'm asking the question because here throughout the rest of the United States in the continental part of the U.S. where there's Portuguese Americans it seems like there's a lapse sometimes between generations and so uh, our our Big dilemma here in, in certain communities, not all of them, in certain communities is how do we pass on to this to the younger generations, to those who are now, you know, 18, 20, 25. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see the younger generation still uh, pretty much involved or or is there a little bit more, I'm a Hawaiian American and that's what I am? Yeah, I actually do feel that there is that interest. Uh, you would be surprised to know that you can drive around Hawaii and you can see Portuguese flags flying regularly. People are very, you'll see an American flag and a Portuguese flag. But I also think there's some very unique Hawaiian influences in terms of the appreciation of genealogy, right? Um, before Captain Cook arrived in Hawaii, Hawaiian actually was only an oral language. So genealogy was actually memorized. And there are, in history books, Hawaiians could actually talk about their genealogy, chant their genealogy for a whole day, going through everything, right? They can connect that. And I think there's already in Hawaii that appreciation for genealogy, that connection to the past, that connection to history. And then also you put that in with our Portuguese society. I think those are, there's those types of influences where younger Portuguese are very interested, right? knowing the origins of their name or knowing where their family came from exactly in Portugal. Or I've, many of our family friends have actually taken, we call them pilgrimage trips back to Portugal to see their family or to understand where they came from. So I do think that that is alive, definitely amongst the older generation, but still amongst the newer, uh, the younger generation as well. 
People are very interested in traveling back to Portugal. That's great. As someone who was interested in languages and it was very much a part of your career, how are, you know, how is learning another language viewed in Hawaii? Is that something that's like truly embraced? And then of course, you know, with Portuguese language, uh, is that something that people are starting to want more of or how do you, how do you see that? I actually think the, the learning of languages is a, mix, a misadvantage here in Hawaii. Um, Hawaii is the most diverse state in the union, right? And we have so many languages, whether it's Portuguese, Spanish, uh, Mandarin, excuse me, Japanese being spoken, we don't take advantage of that. And that's something I'm really promoting is second, third language instruction. Um, we also have a unique uh, relationship here with the Hawaiian language, right? It was almost extinct. And so there is a renaissance in learning Hawaiian, going to Hawaiian only schools. But I think we can do that with other languages. Our Asian population here has a very unique history of like Japanese language school. They call it Japanese school or Chinese school. So after normal school, they would then go to these. I don't see that amongst the Portuguese community, but I think it would be something that would be appreciated. People people need language. And I wish I learned Portuguese, mm-hmm. right? Traveling, mm-hmm. going to Portugal, it was very hard. Like I always felt bad because I would speak in Spanish and they would understand me, but then they would speak back to me. In <laughs> yeah. Couldn't understand, but generally, if I read something, I could understand. So, right, yeah, no, we um we couldn't ag- agree more. And much like Hawaii, we don't see like um, Portuguese schools here on the west coast. I think there's a, a couple of that exist on the east coast, but there's definitely an opportunity to to do that and to have more Portuguese language instruction, which is an- another one of Palkus's uh, areas of focus. So maybe afterwards we can we can meet discuss and figure out how do we make that happen in Hawaii. Yeah. And it so was, it was, I don't have any, oh, go ahead. Me. I was just gonna say it was a critical need in the state department. They were always looking for Portuguese speakers, right. That could go to, oh, wow, that's good to know. We had so many, you know, we have an embassy, but so many consulates in Brazil, but also, you know, many countries in Africa also speak Portuguese. So there was always that need. And it was even suggested to us that we learn languages that had dual, what we call dual, dual bureau use, right? Because you bounce back and forth from different areas of the world. And Portuguese was convenient because you could do Brazil, then go to Africa, come back and bounce back and forth. So it was, it was always encouraged for people to learn Portuguese. And in, in, the, in Hawaii, the community is not basically settled in just one island. There are communities or there are uh, Hawaiians of Portuguese background in various islands, correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So and so they're, they're like a, just a concert we're, we're everywhere. Um, my community actually Kailua has a very large, um, Portuguese, um, population actually, because for my community, a lot of firefighters and police officers came to our community because it was cheap enough for them to afford, but many of our firefighters and Police officers are of Portuguese descent, so we have quite a large um, Portuguese diaspora in my own town. And uh, uh, I think that we're just about uh, at the end of our of our conversation. But I, I must ask this: so, the kindergartner who went to the uh, governor's mansion, when will you move in? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> First, I have to do this job good, and let's see if I get reelected. That'll be be the best test. But I do hope if uh, if I am called to do that. Um, the reason why I'm here is service. And if that is what is asked of me is to serve in that position, then so be it. But 
I have to do a good job for us to see. Maybe we'll uh, talk, have another talk in maybe a, a year or so about what to do after you lose an election. And no, no, <laughs> we don't, no, we, no, no, we don't want that one. But let me ask you a question because uh, that kind of opened up uh, your your answer, open up another possibility that I'd like to just explore in the last few minutes that we have, which is how do you get young people and not in not just you know portuguese americans but in this case you know we are of course tailoring the portuguese american uh, community uh, throughout the united states how do you get more young people involved because you had the you had of course the service or the the foreign service which was a plus in many ways because it's not it's not a political job but it's a government service job you you see the role that government plays in people's lives even outside of our own country uh, in your case, of course, th through the foreign office, but how uh, the foreign service, how do you see younger uh, Americans in general, in this case, of course, Portuguese Americans looking at for at uh, at uh, public service? It seems like a few years ago, we did get, get kind of a renaissance in a way that we had a big push and a lot of uh, young uh, Americans of all ethnicities were elected to Congress, you know, and then just a few years ago, uh, a, a few others. But it seems like it's there's the the uh, senior citizen club that's entrenched in some halls of Congress. And how do we get young people to believe that they don't have to wait until they're 45 or 50 to run mm -hmm. for, for public office. It's something that you can run in your 20s or your 30s. Yeah, absolutely. I always tell anyone who is interested or speak to me, one, I think it's very important that we meet them where they want to communicate, right? I'm very active on social media. I'm very active on Facebook, right? It's none of this, uh, hey, if you want to reach me, please call my secretary type of thing, right? It's more like, hey, we're going to have a chat on Facebook Messenger. I'm going to comment to you. I'm going to give you my cell phone. That's where we need to meet them in terms of communication. But the other thing, too, is I always tell them is you need to come out. You need to intern and always looking for opportunities. Uh, we had a young intern in our office um, on our campaign. We have a lot of young people. And I just tell them, what are you interested in and what can I do to help you get to where you want to? Right. And that's what we need to do as leaders is to make sure we're meeting them halfway to give them the opportunity to grow and to learn. Indeed. I think that's uh, some great advice, uh, not only for our young folks, but for the leaders out there and, and folks that, you know, like us that want to encourage other folks to run that, you know, it, it's as much up to us to encourage them as it is for them to take initiative to, to get the process going. So thank you, uh, Representative Bronco. That was that was really good. Um, and with that, we're going to wrap it up. So thank you so much for your time, Representative Bronco. It was really great to get to know you. And, um, uh, you know, we're recording this just a few days before I'm heading out to Hawaii for my vacation. Unfortunately, I'm not going to your island, but next time for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then we will, we will meet, meet up and, and have some good Portuguese food together. Thanks to all of our listeners out there who have joined us again for this wonderful conversation. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, please do and leave us a review on iTunes so that more uh, young Portuguese Americans can find us and join our conversation and, and be inspired and encouraged to run for office and get involved in public service and share this episode with friends and family and um, just help spread the word. And with that, we'll call it a day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of Palcus, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. Palcus is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. 
To learn more about Palkus and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palkus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palkus at palkus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by Palkus. Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.